This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today's episode is a little different, and you'll see why in a minute. And it sounds very strange to our modern ears. But first, we start out with a report from First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt about her recent visit to the British Isles. It first aired on December 9th, 1943, over the Blue Network, the forerunner of what we know today as ABC. So a little explanation about the Blue Network for those unfamiliar with the history. The network was formerly part of NBC, which controlled two networks, the Red and the Blue, as the National Broadcasting Company became so huge it needed two networks of stations to broadcast all of its programming. As part of antitrust litigation, NBC was forced to divest the Blue Network. It sold the network in 1943 to American Broadcasting System, Inc. The network continued to identify as the Blue Network until 1945, when it became the American Broadcasting Company, or ABC. Now, I told you about things being a little different. Here's where today's program is, let's say, unique. The entire program is sponsored by the Council on Candy as Food in the War Effort. That's right, the Council on Candy as Food in the War Effort, which is, I assure you, a real organization made up of candy manufacturers. So after Mrs. Roosevelt's talk, We then hear a report from Major General Evan B. Gregory, the Quartermaster General of the U.S. Army, on the food being provided to soldiers. What's interesting is the General does spend a good amount of time talking about the importance of candy to the war effort. Then we'll hear the announcer extol the virtues of eating candy for soldiers and those working on the home front. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcasts to find links to past episodes and other information. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ww2radio. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It is our great privilege to present to you two very distinguished persons, Mrs. Franklin D. Roosevelt and Major General Edmund B. Gregory, Quartermaster General of the United States Army. First, Mrs. Roosevelt will give a report to the mothers of the nation concerning her recent trip to the British Isles. This broadcast is made possible by the Council on Candy as Food in the War Effort, an independent organization of candy manufacturers located throughout the United States. One of the purposes of the Council is to make known the importance of candy as a food in helping to win the war. 
its part in helping to maintain health and morale among our armed forces abroad and at home. Candy's part in increasing efficiency and helping to prevent accidents among workers in war industries. And Candy's part in providing needed nourishment as a supplementary food for the civilian population of our own and allied countries. Now it is our pleasure to present Mrs. Franklin D. Roosevelt. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I have already talked a number of times on the radio about various phases of my trip to Great Britain but I'm glad of this opportunity to give a more detailed account of the situation there as I saw it. Great Britain is a small island, so small, that one of our boys, inquiring as to how long it would take him by train to go from one point to another, when told what the distances were in every direction before he reached the sea, drew a long breath and said, Gee, you tumble off quickly in any direction, don't you? The whole area of Great Britain could be contained in any one of several of our states with ease. They are 18 miles at some points from an enemy who has very good planes, is industrially well-developed, and has one of the best trained and equipped armies in the world. Three years ago, Great Britain was entirely unprepared to repel any real effort at invasion. Today, one gets the feeling that one is living in a fortress. Everywhere along the coast there is protection, and the Home Guard is a very active body of people who are prepared to spring to arms in their own defense at any moment, quite aside from the regular army, which is in Great Britain. Most of this army is in training, but is available for defense at any point. There is now a network of sea and air defense such as was not dreamed of at the time of the Battle of Britain. But this little island has fronts all over the world, where her men are fighting side by side with the men of the Dominions and now with the men from the United States. The population of the whole island is some 46 million people, so it is perfectly obvious that they have had to use every bit of manpower that was available, and that includes the women and the young people of the nation. They have had to face many things which we, thank God, do not have to face. Up to the time of the beginning of the war, food for Great Britain came from every part of the world, and they only grew 47% of the food which they consumed. The Ministry of Agriculture has succeeded in raising that to nearly 60%, but they still have to obtain a great deal of their food supply from outside their own country, mainly from the United States, Canada, and South America. This means transportation. And transportation has to be taken up sometimes with getting an army to Africa and keeping it supplied with food and ammunition after it gets there. In Great Britain, nothing must be made which is not necessary because labor and materials are precious. Great Britain is on a strict rationing system for food, for instance, because no one should have more than he needs to eat. It is probably true that a number of people in Great Britain whose diet was slim in the past may have a better balanced diet than ever before. Every child under 14, Lord Wolfen, the Minister of Food, told me, must have a pint of milk a day and they pay for it when able, otherwise they get it free. Every young woman with a baby gets this same amount. But many other people in Great Britain use powdered milk, powdered eggs, and dehydrated foods from the United States and the roast beef of old England, for which she was justly famous, has practically disappeared from the table. 
One fresh egg a month is the civilian ration. As I discovered when we were breakfasting in one of our American Navy stations, and I happened to have beside me a young girl who was a private in the Army or Auxiliary Service. I heard a little gasp as a plate was put down before her, and on asking her what was the matter, she replied, Oh, two months' rations all at once. I looked down to see that two fried eggs had been placed before her, from American rations, of course. The people of Great Britain have learned to eat what they can get and to bear it without much complaining. They've learned to get only the clothes which their coupons allow them to have, and these cover only the necessities of life. You're lucky if you had enough left from pre-war days to give you a few extra things to wear. If you're bombed out, some of the second-hand clothing which the people of the United States have sent over will be given you at a distribution agency without your having to produce coupons to obtain them. You will be telling me soon that none of this seems to have much relation to anything happening over here and that you do not quite understand why it is of interest to you. My answer is that I think we have something to learn from the fact that people have lived on that island and developed protective devices which make life possible and can still smile and look hopefully toward the future. They do discuss food. It does make a tremendous difference. For instance, if you bring some friend a gift from this country, say a box of hard candy or of chocolates, they thank you as they might have thanked you in the past for a diamond bracelet, some bobby pins or a cake of soap or a gift from heaven. You may laugh, but my short time spent over there has sharpened my appreciation of many of the things I used to take for granted over here. I walk down the street on a bright sunny day and find myself repeating, what a wonderfully blue sky and how marvelous the sun is. I will order a meal in a restaurant and remember that over there I had to choose carefully because I could not have eggs and meat or fish at the same meal. I could have one and only one. We haven't had to undergo bombing, and I pray that we will never have to. Nevertheless, I have a great admiration for the people of Great Britain, who have developed such steadfastness and calm during the concentrated blitzes that now they pay no attention to a sporadic raid here and there. In Dover, where shelling and enemy air sorties are frequent, we were being shown about the grounds near the houses which the wrens occupy. The wrens correspond to our waves and do many things in the Navy to release men for other service. The day we were there, the director's office in one of the buildings was having a new roof put on, and they casually pointed to a hole in the ground and said, that's where the bomb dropped yesterday. And then they showed me a tree between two buildings, which had been badly scarred by the passing of a shell, which had gone beyond through the shelter filled with girls. We were very fortunate, my guide said. Only one girl's head was grazed by the shell. The children in the streets, of course, can tell you whether the drone of a motor overhead is an enemy machine or one of their own. And they can tell you whether a bomb dropping is an incendiary bomb or something more harmful. Yet nobody seemed excited or even disturbed. 
Some people go into the shelters built into the cliffs if they think it's going to be a bad night, primarily because they want to be able to sleep and be ready for work in the morning, not because they are afraid. Somehow one feels these people are beyond fear, and they know the business of life must go on, and they're able to bear whatever is their lot. I've come back with a tremendously increased confidence and admiration for the ability of human beings to stand up under difficulty and danger. I'm sure we could do just what the British have done, but I hope we may not have to. I trust that we will be able to understand enough about the world in which we live so that we will truly allow all of our energies and all of our power to go into the organization of a world in which such things as this war cannot happen again. Men and women in Great Britain, and children too, are fighting this war day in and day out, hour in and hour out. They spend long hours in factories, give constant service in military establishments and civilian relief work, and through it all, hope and confidence in the future never flags. They have time to strive to make the community in which they live a better community than ever before, and they consider such work a necessary part of the war effort. Many people have learned lessons, which are lessons for all time, not just for the war period. In Bristol, the women's voluntary service, manned largely by housewives, used their mobile canteens, which fed the whole population during the Blitz, in the more peaceful times they now enjoy, to take midday and midnight meals to the dock workers, so they will not have to waste time leaving their work in search of food. One of the housewives told me that she had lived all her life in Bristol and had been rather fearful of the dock workers. They were rough men, men who used bad language, who got drunk, and were generally not the nice people of the town. But now they were her friends. They were keeping the lifeline open by loading and unloading ships as quickly as their strength would allow. And she would never feel again that gulf between herself and her neighbors. Old boys who are in camps over there are learning a great deal too. They're learning what the homes in Great Britain are like, what the people are like, and that there is gratitude there for the generosity of people in this country in their hour of trial. Our boys have had to stand up under the same difficult climate as the British, and I doubt if they like it in the autumn and winter. But at least they have American food in camp and are not restricted as the British are. They have their own canteens, and it is lucky that they have, for the young American has a sweet tooth and can consume more candy and more sugar than one would think possible if one had not observed it. Even the paratroops have as part of their rations a cake of chocolate, and some of the boys tell me that on long marches, hard candy is a tremendous help. Our boys have a justifiable pride, I think, in their equipment. Their uniforms are good, and they are well supplied. If we in private life find it hard here and there to get just what we want, it will give us satisfaction to know that the reason may be that our boys are getting more of the necessary clothes for whatever climate they may be in than is the case in any other army in the world. They do have to learn a lot from experience. Most of them haven't liked woolen socks a great deal in the past unless they were working in the woods or going on a skiing party or a long hike. Now they find that at least in Great Britain, everyone wears woolen socks, and they are pretty comfortable. 
If they scorned them at first when they were offered them, they hope they will have another chance to accept them. They're getting good medical care, in many cases probably better than they would have at home. War is a job which hardens men, both physically and mentally, and there are hazards which no amount of good equipment or preparation can prevent. But some of the boys who come through safely will perhaps have had certain chances to remedy physical defects which they might never have had in civilian life. I said the other day that I wished we trained young officers especially for leading discussion groups. And one of the New York papers found an ex-sergeant of Marines who boiled over on the subject of what this would do in the way of softening the men. He just did not seem to realize that that was part of the mental toughening which many of the men need, and not my idea at all, but one that some of the best fighting men I've ever known have actually put into practice. Out of this war will come men toughened physically and mentally, knowing what they want in the future. But unless they also know how to go about getting it and how to really analyze the world situation, they will not be much use as citizens. No matter how good a soldier you are, your fundamental value is as a citizen in the future. Your boys scattered over the world are learning to be the best United States citizens possible because they're learning about the world as a whole, of which the United States is just a part. We who stay at home must stretch our own horizons in every way possible so when the boys return, they will find us able to keep step with them mentally. This is recognized in Great Britain, and many people are preparing for the post-war period now. The beverage report shows how far their thinking has gone, and I think that we should be grateful that there are groups of people in and out of the government who are also planning for the future over here. No matter how well we plan, there must be a long period of readjustment, and the better we plan, the better we will be prepared to make that period count for the good of the whole world which I felt were not as yet sufficiently developed, and many people in Great Britain feel the same way. For instance, they have the same problem that we have about the school child, too old for a day nursery or nursery school, who attends school and yet is left for several hours, more hours in Great Britain than in this country as yet, with mothers who work and no one to supervise the home. They're talking of what can be done to develop better supervision for these children so that the period between the actual closing of school and the time when workers return to their homes may not be a period of danger for the children and the young people. I did not feel that in this field they had anything to offer us as yet, and I hope that we will go on with the development of school use for after-school activities, and perhaps we may be able to originate some ideas which may be of use to them. They have the same problem with their girls of 14 and 15 that has cropped up in some places in the United States, where young boys are working in factories, as they now are also in England, before they enter the military forces. There is here they make more money than they could have made in the past, more money than a soldier makes, with the result that unless wholesome and attractive, leisure time activities are developed for this 14 to 18 year old group. They will take to the entertainment provided for older people and will suffer in consequence. It seemed to me also that in connection with British restaurants, which are undoubtedly a godsend to all people with families who have to get food occasionally out of their own homes in moderate price places, there might be developed a service where people could order food and take it home with them. 
Of course, the evening meal is a fairly simple meal to get in Great Britain, so that the canteens in every factory with their midday and midnight hot meals and the universal school lunches for children in school do mean a great relief and reduction in the home cooking. We probably do more preparation for our evening meal than they do, and it might be more important to us to have a home service than it is to them. This, of course, is only necessary in places where great numbers of women go from the homes to work on a full daily schedule. And over here, we will probably never have the long hours which they've been forced to have in Great Britain. There is also a possibility of organizing neighborhoods into cooperative groups for filling these home needs. They acknowledge in Great Britain that it is better to work shorter hours, particularly for the women, but necessity and shortage of manpower drives them to the longer hours. I have an idea that in this country we may feel our shortage of manpower more acutely on the farms than anywhere else, and perhaps the organization of a land army may be the most helpful pattern for us to study in Great Britain. The most outstanding thing about it to me was that training was given the women who entered the land army, that they were issued equipment and uniforms just as the auxiliary military services were, and that they had the same social security benefits and health insurance allowances and unemployment compensation that the factory workers had. They try in England to so organize their farms that they have at least a nucleus of workers who are all year round workers. Their farms are smaller and more diversified, and it is an easier problem than it is with us on some of our big ranches, which have primarily seasonal needs for a great number of workers. This problem, however, will have to be met by us in a special way, I imagine, with volunteers, perhaps, during the war period. The regular supply of farm labor might be greatly helped over here by the organization of a woman's land army. The placement would, of course, be done through the regular employment service channels, and the recruiting and training would probably be better done under the Department of Agriculture. Here, I think we might find much help in a careful study of what the triumphs and disasters may have been in the development of the work in Great Britain. Ours would have to be a voluntary enlistment. Over there, these workers are drawn from the regular draft group. There is compulsory billeting over there, so that if the farmer has not room to house and feed the workers, they can be put in houses in a nearby village and their board paid, or the government sets up a hostel, probably in some unused country house, where their board money is used in the general upkeep. Lady Denman, who heads this group in England, might be one of the people it would be helpful for us to consult over here. Some of our American girls who are in the ferry command in Great Britain, flying all kinds of airships from place to place within the island, must be getting an opportunity to see something of the work of a great many of the British girls. And I wonder if from time to time, it might not be a good idea to ask some of them to report to us their impressions over the radio from Great Britain. Fresh points of view that come to us from people who are actually doing work in faraway countries, it seems to me would be helpful in understanding the world's situation as it develops. I hope that our War Information Service may occasionally be able to arrange this for us. In closing, I think I will tell you the two things which seem to be the most important to the boys from the United States that I saw in Great Britain, many of whom are now in Africa. One was male, the other was pay. I'm sure that in their letters you've had these same things come up. Why don't they get their pay on time? Why don't they get their letters? The answer is that when men move about, and they do move from camp to camp within Great Britain, and suddenly from this country to other parts of the world, and from their first destinations to new destinations, 
it is sometimes very difficult to work out the mere mechanics of getting their paychecks on the date due and of having the mail reach its destination as quickly as possible. I think every effort should be made by the departments involved to improve both of these things as rapidly as possible. But where the pay is concerned, I think the most important thing is that allotments to families should be promptly paid. After all, the men are taken care of as far as their actual needs are concerned, but family needs cannot wait. Even then, I do not think that we should ever be complacent over any shortcomings, and I hope that both these things will eventually be improved. Our sincere thanks to you, Mrs. Roosevelt, for your very interesting report. In fog-bound Britain, on the burning sands of Africa, in Australia, Alaska, in army posts in this country, and wherever American soldiers are fighting the good fight, one question stands above all others. When do we eat? And then, of course, the companion query, what do we eat? We have a very distinguished army officer in our studio tonight who can tell us more about what American soldiers eat than any other individual. This is Major General Edmund B. Gregory, the Quartermaster General of the United States Army, whose branch of the service purchases and distributes all of the food for the United States Army. Ladies and gentlemen, General Gregory. All military men know the importance of food in war. Well-conceived rations are just as decisively important as well-conceived strategy. Responsible leaders of our government have pointed out that American food will not only win the war, but will also help write the peace. It is important for our soldiers not only to have enough food, but to have the right kinds of food. Food must be balanced as to carbohydrates and fats, contain the necessary vitamins, minerals, and proper proteins. But even all this is not enough in wartime. The soldier's food must be adapted to climatic conditions and the type of duty he is called upon to perform. Some of the most interesting products which have been developed by the Army Quartermaster Corps to meet these needs include dehydrated cheese, which will not freeze in Arctic weather, nor turn rancid in tropic climes, an Army Special Butter, which is a 100% dairy product, but which will not melt at 120 degrees Fahrenheit, breakfast cereals containing milk and sugar that require only water to prepare, instant rice, canned ham and eggs, dehydrated apple nuggets, jams and preserves that require only the addition of water, and other foods too numerous to mention. These include foods which have been concentrated, dehydrated, compressed, or developed into new combinations or prepared mixes. Most important of all, the finished product, no matter how efficient it may seem in laboratory tests, must be acceptable to the soldier himself. No matter how nutritious the food, it is of no value if the soldier will not eat it in sufficient quantities. All army foods have been checked against our soldier's own taste preferences. To use the old axiom, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. One of the most popular army foods, of course, is candy. This is shown by the quick sale of candy at all Army post exchanges. As a matter of fact, dextrose candy tablets and fruit bars are included in the famous K ration developed by the Army Quartermaster Corps. Whether in camp, in the field, or on active combat duty, the Army nutrition experts find that the American soldier is a better fighting man when candy is a part of his diet. It not only provides nourishment, but candy is also a real morale builder. And in order to satisfy the sweet tooth of soldiers in all parts of the globe, types of confection which will, will withstand temperatures ranging from 20 degrees below zero 
to 120 degrees above zero are used in Army rations. We know that such research as this by the Army and by the cooperating industries will have important results. We know that our soldiers are the best equipped in the world and the best fed. They are being fed foods that have been developed for all conditions and situations. There should be no hungry or costly delays in preparing rations in the field. Thus, our troops are physically fit and mentally alert to cope with all the wartime situations. Mothers and fathers of our fighting men can rest assured that their boys are being scientifically fed and well-fed. They will return to their homes after the war stronger and sturdier as a result. And many of the special foods which have been developed by our army for its own use will undoubtedly find their way into the diet of the nation for everyday civilian consumption. Thank you, General Gregory. Ladies and gentlemen, Major General Edmund B. Gregory has just told us about the preparation of special rations for our soldiers and the important part played by candy in helping maintain balanced diet and high morale. If someone is tempted to say, tell it to the Marines, let me assure them that this is not necessary. The Marines already know all about candy. On Guadalcanal, candy is known among the Levenecks as pogey bait, and pogey bait will obtain certain things that money cannot buy. Eyewitness reports tell of Marines wangling deals with sailors fresh from the battle wagons of the Pacific Fleet, offering a Jap helmet for a candy bar, a Jap flag for three bars. On Guadalcanal, candy is not only food, it's recreation, money and the spirit of home all in one. Candy is also doing its part in supplying nourishment and morale for the army behind the army. The workers on America's teeming production lines. For example, Mr. J.C. Bauer, safety supervisor, Westinghouse Electric and Manufacturing Company, Pittsburgh, states, The food wagons which supply our workers with candy and other energy-producing foods between meals have helped materially in reducing our accident rate by approximately 30%, in spite of 21% increase in man-hours of work. While Mr. L.S. Lord, the Director of Employee Activities for the Caterpillar Employees Activities Association in Peoria, Illinois, makes this interesting observation. Our approximately 16,000 employees have benefited a great deal by candy being made available throughout the plant. Candy plays an important part in lessening fatigue and increasing morale of our employees. The Council on Candy is Food in the War Effort feels it is especially significant when industrialists like these recognize the importance of candy in helping to win the war on the home front. The candy industry has done its best to meet increasing needs under difficult conditions, such as shortages of ingredients, equipment, and manpower. And everywhere possible, candy companies have put their facilities to work in the war effort outside the field of candy manufacturing as well. Typical examples are concerns which have installed lines for packaging dried eggs in moisture-proof boxes for Lend-Lease, turning over machine shops, making vacuum tubes, producing shell dyes, building and operating machines for fastening electric connections on cables, and so on in one candy factory after another. Remember, on the fighting fronts and on the home fronts, candy helps win the war. Candy is an essential war food. A booklet containing the interesting talks you have heard this evening will be sent to you free of charge if you will address the station to which you are listening. This program has been presented by the Council on Candy as food in the war effort. Mrs. Roosevelt and General Gregory spoke from Washington.
need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. We hope these old-time radio programs entertain and help you learn more about what Americans experienced during the war 80 years ago. Be sure to visit brickpicklemedia.com slash podcasts for past episodes and more information 